Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 579. I am your host, host Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Oh, what a story we have in today's show. <gasps> Pangloss by Alan Fisher. Yes, that's coming up. But at first, a few little things. Our Patreon has slumped, unfortunately. Yeah, it's going to give me hard flutters there. We are now standing at 429. We were at 433 for a long time, but then that payday comes around and just kind of knocks the stuffing out. So what a shame. But please, big thank you to Timothy Orling. Tim, what a star, sir. Thank you so much. And author Michael Kilman. Big thank you, Michael, indeedy, and Phil Rossi. Phil, what can I say? Gentlemen, it is an honour and thank you so much for supporting this good show. It, is, it means so much, thank you. Anybody else wants to, don't forget you can get John Brunner's audio serial book done by our very own Amy H. Sturgis and Drew Sebastini from Tales to Terrify. Yes. And speaking of Amy, she is on the show today. We have our very own Ames coming on later on. We're looking back at genre history. But first, Pangloss by Alan Fisher. And like I said, it is an original to Starship Sova. Alan Fisher is an attorney living in Washington, D.C. He's published two novellas, Servant of the Muses and Pearl of Her Eyes, under the name of Brad White. Both are available wherever books are sold. His short story, The Confession of Diego Stolzel, was included in Alban Lake Publishing's recent Lovecraftian anthology, City in the Ice. His favourite authors include John Le Carre, William Gibson, Raymond Chandler and Neil Stevenson. When not writing, he enjoys playing board games with his wife and son and running role-playing games for his friends. Now this story is narrated by Eric Luke. Eric Luke is the screenwriter of Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. The comic boost books Ghost and Wonder Woman and wrote and directed Not Quite Human films for Disney's TV. His current project, sorry, his current project, Interface, a meta horror audiobook about audiobook that kills, is still available free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Pangloss by Alan M. Fisher. The sun was rising over the spire of St. Stephen's as I watched the woman poison the baby's milk. 
The inn was starting to stir. Downstairs, I could hear the clatter of pots as the cooks began their day. Behind me, I heard the first mewling of the hungry baby waking. I was sufficiently out of phase with the local time stream that she couldn't see me. She was having some trouble with her temporal bubble, fading in and out, and the poison was spilling, some in the milk, some on the rough wooden table. The baby coughed. I didn't have much time. I had all the time in the world. I manifested behind her and shunted some of the power off my temporal bubble into hers, anchoring her in the moment. She spun to look at me with a startled squawk, and the rest of the poison spilled. The baby started to cry, tiny gasping noises. When we were on operations, some of us wore shiny silver suits, or black ninja lycra. Me? I went for what I was. Just another guy who made a few mistakes, but made them in a smart way. A lab coat with many pockets, a pair of round-rimmed glasses. Good morning, I whispered with a smile. We should go. She started to protest, but I grabbed her wrist with one hand, the poisoned milk with the other. I'm a lot stronger than I look. Skeletal enhancements and all that. I dragged her out into the hall, trying not to hurt her too much. What's your name? I asked pleasantly. The baby was crying at full volume now and in the room a man cursed in German. Leah, she whispered. She had tanned skin and dark hair, and very dark eyes. Cute. Leah Feld. Nice to meet you, Leah, I said. Mossad? Shinbet? A shot in the dark. But the Israeli services had tried this before. No, I work at the Demona facility. Her eyes were cast down. She'd heard stories. She knew she was caught. In the room we'd left, I heard a woman's voice, again in German. Alois? Where's the milk? Just give him the tit, woman. Let me get some sleep, the man growled, and the baby's screams quieted. With a firm grip on her wrist, I phased us both through the wall into an alley. A fellow scientist, then, I said. Why so stupid? Stupid? I was trying to save millions. Save my people. She was crying now, wounded indignation in her voice. Save millions, kill billions. Pretty damn selfish, Leah. I shook my head, a disapproving father. Do you have any children? A husband? I was stalling now, waiting on Atropos. No, she whispered, and data came streaming into my mind. No children, no husband, no harm to the timeline. Too bad for Leah. The bells of St. Stephen's began to chime, and our time was up. I pulled out my wafer. Sorry, Leah, I said, as I turned her strong force into weak force. Leah Feld began to dissipate, the forces that held her atoms together suddenly growing several orders of magnitude too weak to weave proton to neutron to electron. The grand unified theory, proof that all the forces were the same, opened the door to the past, and to marvelous weapons like the wafer. I walked through the mist of Leah, expanding rapidly on a light wind, and wondered whether history would change, because little Adolf got some extra time on the breast instead of the bottle. I jumped forward to clean up the paradox, 
A quick shot with some infrasound sterilized any eggs her mother was carrying at the time. And no more Leah. Never was, never will be. Amen. Time to go home. Everyone had their own name for the place. The Nexus, the Central Point, the Plaza. I called it the Crossroads, because somehow the tall silver tower and the cluster of mirrored bubbles glittering in the half-set, never-setting sun made me think of Robert Johnson's devil-cursed, devil-blessed fingers strumming the guitar. Standing at the crossroad, baby. Rise and sun going down. I believe to my soul now. Poor Bob is sinking down. One of the bubbles was sinking on down to poor Bob now, Atropos claiming her pound of memories. I looked around at the rest of the human debris washed up on this distant edge of time, flushed down this temporal toilet. They were what you'd expect, people who were too smart by half and got themselves out of their local time stream and into trouble. The bubble settled in front of me with a low hum that made my teeth ache. It was seven feet high, seven around, and when I focused on it, the silver rippled like mercury, and an opening appeared like parting lips. I stepped through it, and it surrounded me, cupping me like a lover, and Atropos' voice was in my ear and everywhere, calm, female. Hello, Robert. Are you ready to report? Why do they always make computers sound like this? Female, calm, clinical? Her voice turned me on every time. I'd had a few dreams about Atropos, just her voice, and woke hot and bothered. I nodded, closed my eyes, remembering my first sight of Leah Feld poisoning Hitler's milk. The memory play out, her desert tanned skin and dark hair, the smell of the milk and the sound of the church bells, and the fading dark of her eyes, as the wafer robbed her of consistency, and spread her into a cloud of basic particles. Leah was telling me she was there to save her people and I realized I was giving her Atropos' voice. You didn't ask her how she did it, Robert, Atropos said. That is standard procedure. She was a one-off, I replied too quickly. I could see it in her eyes. She'd done the first thing she could think of, and the last thing. And the last thing, Atropos echoed, stealing the thought from my head. But it is standard procedure, I'd prefer not to see another lapse like that, Robert. Yes, ma'am, I mumbled. Thank you for your report, Robert. Good work. The silver parted before me, and I could see the crossroads, Atropos Tower gleaming, but I wanted to stay a moment longer, embraced by the silver with Atropos in my ear. Atropos, can I ask you a question? Of course, Robert. What happens if we let one of them kill Hitler? How do the timelines play out? My mouth was dry. She answered immediately. She'd probably seen a dozen, a dozen, dozen timelines play out. If he dies late in the war, then a nuclear war between the Russians and Americans usually results within a decade. If he dies before he enters politics, then a weakened Germany usually collapses in the 1930s. Thanks, Atropos. I stepped back out into the sunset crossroads, where a bubble was descending to pick up a Russian laser scientist from the 22nd century, while another disgorged a French theoretical physicist 
who had dissolved himself one day at CERN. Smart people who'd made dumb mistakes. Some smart people realized they could make the same mistake over and over again, if they'd survived the first time. Some of them thought they could go and change the past, and they ended up like Leah. Others just wanted to watch, like me. And they became watchers, or time cops, or past protection patrol, or whatever stupid name you wanted to give us. All the names were stupid. We were Atropos people, and whoever built her, well, I guess we worked for them. We didn't need uniforms, esprit de corps, any of that crap. Most of us hated each other, which suited Atropos fine, because she always encouraged us not to talk to each other. As for me, it was a criticality accident. I was working on a new miniaturized warhead design for lightweight reentry vehicles, started fiddling with the fissionables, and pop! A blue flash of Cherenkov radiation, and I was out of time. A few seconds later, I was back. With testing, I figured out how to mix certain levels of this and that, how to go forward and back, how to stay a while, whenever I was. Stupid, really. And I probably gave myself cancer. But I did have one smart thought. If I could do it, and do it by accident, someone else could too, probably on purpose. And that someone was probably watching. Which they were, of course. I hear tell that Atropos constantly scans famous images for changes. You pop in at Dealey Plaza in time to hear Lee Harvey at all, pop off a few rounds at Jack. You show up in the Zapruder film where you weren't before. Then you're going to meet someone like me, with a wafer. So, I was smart. I avoided the big things. I heard Martin Luther King tell the crowd about his dream, but I didn't wait in Memphis to watch the dream die. I watched Marilyn Monroe strip, but didn't watch her OD. But they caught me anyway, eventually. Tiny ripples I made magnified across the centuries until Atropos' antenna quivered. And then I got the offer. Help patrol. Help maintain the time stream. Or be dispersed. And I made my second smart move. To live, rather than to die. I walked quickly through the crossroads to get out from under the bisected sun. The 20th century dorm was a black block of straight lines that lacked all character. It could have stood, ugly yet unobtrusive, in New York, New Delhi, or Newfoundland, without attracting much notice except for the occasional sneer of disdain. Our masters were all-powerful, but apparently couldn't afford to hire a decent architect. Or maybe architects didn't fall between the minutes and end up at the crossroads. There were other dorms for other eras, They tried to collect people from the same relative time frame in the same place to avoid alienation, according to Atropos, but probably to make sure we didn't learn more about the future than we were supposed to, or to pollute the minds of the past. There were buildings for people from ten centuries beyond my time and more, but I never saw anyone going into them. As I opened the door, I heard music and laughter coming from the bar. Atropos insisted it was just a common room, but we'd turned it into a speakeasy, a tavern, a little hole in the wall where you could drink yourself into a stupor in a dark corner. It was neutral ground, the place we could all stand in without killing each other. I thought about passing by and just going to my room, 
But Leah would be waiting for me there with all her friends. Some drinks would kill the life in her eyes. I opened the door, and Iulia spilled out into my arms. She was six sheets to the wind already, smelled like a distillery had exploded next to a baby powder factory, and her normally severe bun had let loose into a Medusa tangle of dark hair framing her reddened face. Instead of pushing off of me, she hung onto my shoulders for dear life. What the hell? I snapped, getting ready to step back and let her fall gracelessly to the floor. She burped, a nasty flow of alcohol and gas. Steve's getting erased, darling, she said in a Boris and Natasha accent. I knew that her English was flawless. She was either putting on a good act, or she was really drunk. So I held on to her, stumbling with her to a couch. We collapsed on top of it together, her atop me, and she giggled. Iulia wasn't unattractive. She normally put on an unattainable ice queen show, her hair tight and high, cold blue eyes, and a precise recounting of every reason she would never grace your bed. But she was drunk, drunker than I'd seen her, laying on top of me like a giggling blanket. She was Romanian, and had been working for the Soviets with high-energy lasers when she poofed herself into the future by misaligning some lenses. You should go and say goodbye, Bob, she breathed heavily. Goodbye to Steve. Goodbye. I slid out from underneath her. Voluntary or involuntary, I asked. Normally we wouldn't throw a party for an involuntary erasure, but this was Steve, and Steve was an asshole. Voluntary, she croaked around another burp. I guess he got tired of seeing heads explode, darling. She dissolved into helpless laughter. Steve had the Kennedy dossier, like I had the Hitler dossier. Two favorite time-traveler destinations. Adolf and Dealey Plaza. Kill Hitler or save Kennedy? But I hated saving Hitler every goddamn time. Steve savored watching Kennedy take a round in the skull. Loved seeing Camelot fall. Wouldn't talk about how he'd gotten to the crossroads probably because he thought the mystery of it made him cooler. I won't pretend I'd miss him, the racist, sexist, Kennedy-killing asshole. But I wasn't going to miss a few drinks over him, either. Yulia was still caught in her fit of mirth, so I slipped away to the bar. They were singing Irish songs, or trying to, but most of them didn't know the words, so it dissolved into choruses of pseudo-Gaelic howling. In the center of the room sat Steve, in his black suit, thin black tie, sunglasses, and black fedora over close-cropped blonde crew-cut. The classic man in black, the archetypal government agent, come to hide the truth on behalf of power. I pushed my way into the scrum to the bar and grabbed two shot-glasses of something brown. I downed one on the way over to Steve. He looked up, face a stone-sober blank. Bob, he nodded in a toneless voice. Hey, Steve-o. I said, flipping a chair around and sitting on it backward, because I knew it would annoy him. A slight flutter of his eyelid told me I had hit home. I hear you can't take it anymore. You've asked Atropos to take you out. True? I tossed back the other glass. Yes, he said simply. I sat straddling the chair, grinning maniacally at him, waiting for more. But there was no more. Well, Jesus, Steverino, I drawled. You finally got tired of sitting on the grassy knoll? Seen enough pink pillbox hats spattered with blood? 
Christ, boy, I thought you were tougher than that. The music was loud. I didn't think anyone else could hear us. I guess not, he replied. The corners of his mouth twitched, perhaps into a smile. I mean, some of us can go and save Hitler every goddamn day without blinking, I snarled. Why was I pushing this? Steve was about to stop existing. Last chance to needle him. Yes, he replied, face back to neutral. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I spat finally to break the silence between us. I went back to the bar, and I knew the SOB cracked a smile at that one. I took two more glasses, tossed them down quickly, and felt the buzz begin to set my spine on fire. I stared down at my reflection in the bar and watched as my face got mean. The booze burrowed into my skull. I got another glass and started pounding on the bar. Shut up, I yelled. Everyone, shut the fuck up. The music kept roaring on, but I had everyone's attention now. I raised the glass over my head. A toast. A toast to Steve, the man who saves the world from the horrors of John F. Kennedy. People cheered and raised their glasses, and I downed my fifth shot. Maybe this time, Oswald will miss, I roared. Everyone fell quiet again, turning away from me, mumbling. Fuck you all, I muttered, and I walked out. Yulia was sleeping on the couch as I went to my room. She was whimpering in her sleep, twitching. I took off my lab coat and draped it over her as a blanket. My room was a suite, a living area, a bathroom, a bedroom, no kitchen. Atropos sent us what we wanted, even if we weren't sure what we wanted. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just the way you liked it. And doped, with just enough trace vitamins to keep you healthy, even if you just liked burgers and fries three times a day. No windows, but all the walls were active screens, and could show any scene you liked. I sat down on the bed and thought about Leah Feld. She appeared on the wall, her face a mask of disappointment, just before I wafered her. Print it out, I whispered, and the printer locked her face down on parchment. Atropos had warned me about keeping trophies of my kills, told me it was a sign of an unhealthy obsession. I did it anyway. I took my page of Leah and stuck it in a drawer with a hundred other faces I had wafered and erased from the timeline. People who only existed in that drawer now. I stripped down for a shower. When I got out, feeling queasy, a small red light was blinking on the screen. You have mail. What is it? I said. Good evening, Robert, Atropos said. Standing there naked and wet, the cool air on me and her voice filling the room. I blushed and scrambled for some boxers. What's up, Atropos? I have a mission for you, Robert, she said. God, can't they leave poor Hitler alone for a night? I asked querulously as I threw myself on the bed. I need you to erase Stephen. You have access to the files you need. Good night, Robert. I closed my eyes tight and pressed my palms down on them until I saw patterns of light. Why me? Because you don't like him, Robert. I thought you'd enjoy the task. I opened my eyes and the afterimages danced. Yeah. You're probably right. A cold mist was falling, falling on poor Bob, 
as I stood at the crossroads waiting to kill Steve. A misty morning in the mountains of Arkansas, cold November, the only hint of the sun a gradual lightening of the sky. I'd read his file. I knew he'd come this way to school. To his segregated middle school here in 1944. Steve was twelve, as good a time as any to erase him. One of the first questions I'd asked Atropos is whether we did more damage to the timelines when we started removing people. Who's to say that someone trying to kill Hitler wasn't also going to have the kid who cured cancer? As usual, her answers were a mixture of oracle and programming manual. But after I'd parsed it and thought about it, I understood. History isn't democratic. Timelines aren't egalitarian. And to put it quite bluntly, Hitler or Kennedy are a hell of a lot more important than you or I. Erasing Steve is a blip. Just another kid vanishing into the mists of Arkansas in the chill autumn of 1944. Timelines would move on. History would slap a band-aid over the paradox. I'd had Steve's whole life splayed out in front of me with all the dignity of a flayed frog. Abusive father, angry that he wasn't man enough to go fight in the war, angry that his wife was dead. Poor school record. A few early run-ins with the sheriff, starting fires, skipping school. A dumb kid on his way down to obscurity. Until he beat up a black guy, beat him bad, and instead of sending him to prison, they sent him to the army. So he could be standing just a little too close to a nuclear bomb set off in the high open deserts of Nevada, a blast that blew him into infinity. His own disappearance, his first cover up, the army trying to hide that they'd vaporized one of their own. No wonder he hid the truth from us. We were the best minds of our generations, and he was a hick from East Bumfuck, Arkansas, who got blown out of sync by his own government. Like I said, Steve was an asshole. And here he came now, out of the mists, in overalls two sizes too big and more patched than denim, cast-offs from his father, battered books tucked under his arm. His shoes were in even worse shape, and he cursed as he stepped into the cold puddles. He was looking from side to side, looking into the falling mist, but I was all but invisible. He reached the crossroads and stopped. I stepped out of the mist in front of him and lowered the wafer. He looked at me with a fierce light in his eyes. There were fresh bruises on his face. He looked so damn young, but not innocent at all. Did Atropos send you? he asked. I froze, parts of my brain misfiring furiously. What did you say? You're here to kill me for some bitch named Atropos, he said. He had a deep southern drawl that he must have had to fight back as an adult. The man in black has no accent. You can't know that, I sputtered. There's no way you can know that. He sneered. I'm supposed to tell you that it's all a lie. It's all a big fucking lie. You can't believe anything she says. Who, who told you that? My brain was coming back online slowly. Well, there was a letter on my pillow this morning. From me. To me. His face softened a bit in wonder. Things that only I would know. Where I buried the Campbell's dog. What I did to it. It said Atropos would send someone to kill me today. 
at the crossroads. My mouth was parched, metallic, and I gulped in the damp air. Anything else? No. His gaze locked on my eyes, and he dropped his books in the mud. Now, you gonna do it or what? I guess I am, I replied, centering the wafer on him. You ready? Sure am, he said, sticking out his chin. Hang on. Are you Bob? I nodded. One more thing, then. He raised both his middle fingers at me. Fuck you. And... I fired. Young Steve joined the Arkansas mist, spreading out among the hillsides where he'd been born. It's a movie you've seen so many times you can say the lines right along with the actors. Nellie Connolly turns around. Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. Jack smiles and nods. And up on the sixth floor of the school book depository, Lee Oswald, his middle name not yet part of a totemic mantra repeated ad nauseum by the powers that be, holds his breath, like the Marines taught him to, and takes aim. On the grassy knoll and atop the Daltex building, scurrying through the sewers and lining the roofs around Dealey Plaza, Schrodinger's gunmen collectively inhale, waiting for the sound of the first bullet, waiting to see if they need to take the shot to finish the job. And Atropos watches it all. The limo makes the turn from Houston to Elm, and Oswald's finger tightens on the trigger. On cue, the intruder puts his hand on the door and prepares to lunge in, to disrupt the first shot, to make sure there aren't any more. And I reach out of timeless space and grab him, pulling him out of the flow and into the ice. I get a name, a reason, and a method. Manipulation of superstrings, relatively advanced. Atropos tells me that she'll handle the paradoxes, and I disperse another damn fool who thinks he can save the future by saving John Kennedy. I come back into the local time stream just at the moment of the first shot, which catches Kennedy just below the neck, travels on to shatter Governor Connolly's wrist. Jackie knows something is wrong. She's starting to turn to Jack. But most of the people in the plaza are still cheering as Oswald ejects the brass and reloads. Atropos is pulling Steve's death out of my head, and for the first time I'm fighting back, just a little hiding the most important fact, that he knew I was coming. Thank you, Robert, she says. Is there anything else you'd like to report? This is your chance to come clean, Bob, to be honest. Nope, that's it, I reply. You seem guarded, Robert, she says. Did this assignment trouble you? I swallow. A little. He was one of us. He was tired, Robert, and you did him a mercy. The silver sphere ripples a little. The interview is ending. I guess so. Can I ask a question? Of course, Robert. When I erased Steve, why didn't that cause a massive paradox? All those people he stopped when he was here. He hadn't stopped them at all, because he never got old enough to get here. Trying to keep part of my brain dark, away from her, was causing a headache, and I massaged my temple. Kennedy is a large event. Steve and those he corrected are not. 
Time flows over small events, around large ones. It takes a larger event still to displace one. She paused. You sound tired, Robert. Take a few days to relax before your next assignment. The sphere parts, letting in the red sun of the crossroads. I blinked and shaded my eyes. I'm off, Hitler. A feeling of relief washed over me. Someone else could take that burden on. Yes. I need you to handle the Kennedy matter. The bubble vanished, leaving me alone in the crossroads, nailed down by the sun. His hands have come up to his neck now, and Connolly's hat has dropped from his now useless hand. My God! They're going to kill us all! He shouts. But the limo slows, and Oswald shoots again. The bullet misses high, slaps against a curbstone, and tosses a fragment of stone into the face of James Teague, cutting his cheek. The bolt works, the brass arcs out, and Oswald is reloading. I'm down on the grassy knoll. In front of me, Abraham Zapruder is becoming famous just by keeping his camera focused. The umbrella man is signaling someone about something, and she tries to step into the time stream from behind the fence, certain that she'll be able to stop the second gunman. I lock her into the ice instead, and vanish her before she can ever find out about the second, or third, or fourth gunman. She doesn't understand people, Eulia breathes in my ear. The ones that made her are distant enough from us that they don't get us, and they can't program her to get us either. Her teeth brush my earlobe. We're not lovers, but we put on a good show for Atropos. It lets us get close, close enough to whisper and probably not get overheard by the high-gain microphones in the room. Steve said she lies. That it's all a lie. I whisper back into her shoulder. He's right. She is lying. But I don't know why. She holds me close and shivers. She has an agenda, and her scenarios aren't plausible. I squeeze her back, fighting the chills down my back. How did Steve get a message to himself? She nuzzles my cheek. Like I said, she doesn't understand us. She gave us the wafers and didn't expect us to open them up. We're a pretty smart group of people, you know, she says, smiling wanly and squeezing my hand. It took some doing, but we reversed-engineered the technology. It's all part of the grand unified theory. We can travel without Atropos now. I moved to kiss her, and she didn't move away. Has anyone gone to the future yet? I asked, as our lips brushed. When will you be ready? She replied. And then we stopped talking. I erase another one. This one was going to appear on the back of the limo in time to take the third bullet. Like it would have mattered. Atropos has the plaza covered six ways to Sunday. A crossfire of snipers, assassins, agents, and shadows. Lee Harvey Oswald fires a third time, his full name soon a comet, burning across the history of the world. And I watch from the triple overpass as JFK's head comes apart like a melon dropped on pavement, as the blood of Camelot sprays across Jackie. Watch Jackie scramble to pick up pieces of Jack's skull that are skittering down the trunk as Clint Hill climbs on the back of the limo, and the driver finally figures out that the world is ending. The limo accelerates out of the kill box and Bob's done his work for the day.
The silver sphere descends, parting, and I step into Atropos. I give her my memories, and she verbally pats me on the head like the good dog that I am. Can I ask you a question? Of course, Robert. What happens if Kennedy survives? She answered immediately. After all, she'd probably seen a dozen, a dozen dozen timelines play out, right? His brother takes power, and then his other brother, the formation of a dynasty that results in totalitarianism. Iulia was right. She doesn't understand us at all. How blind have I been? I managed to stifle my emotions, hide a forming grin at the stupidity of her explanation. Thanks, Atropos. You're welcome, Robert. How stupid have I been? I whined into Iulia's chest. How come I didn't see this sooner? She stroked my hair with one hand, the other resting on the small of my back. Nothing she said ever really made sense. A lot of us were fooled, darling, she murmured back. It is easy to believe in omniscience. I'm a fool, I muttered. I believed her. I obeyed her. I raised my head. And why didn't you all tell me earlier? I snarled, anger bubbling forth. Her face froze, and she pushed me away. The room was colder away from her. Because you obeyed. We wouldn't have told you anything, she hissed, if Atropos hadn't chosen you to erase Steve. She pulled me back to her, remembering the cameras, the microphones, and put her mouth to my ear, parodying foreplay. You were the last choice to bring in. But she trusts you. You've done everything without protest. The rest of us raised hell before we settled under her thumb. Her voice was harsh in my ear. But you, you took to the lash like a professional, Bob. She bit my earlobe hard, like you wanted to be her slave. I just wanted to believe in her, I said. I know. Her voice softened, and the pressure of her teeth was replaced by the moistness of her lips. The dorm for travelers from the 24th century was empty, sterile, and cold. No one's ever been here? Never, Iulia responded. It's a fake, a Potemkin facade, for us. The buildings for everyone from the 23rd on are empty. The time machine sat in a larger room, probably a putative common room. It lacked the spectral elegance of Atropos' shimmering bubbles, but it was clearly a human creation. Pieces and parts cobbled together from cannibalized wafers, or smuggled in from the past. And this thing works? I asked. She smiled. The equations work. The equipment should work. If the equations are right, she ended with a shrug. Why me, then? Steve could have gone. I walked around it, touching parts and dials, pulling back two frost-burned fingers. God damn, I said, as I shoved them in my mouth to warm them. Liquid nitrogen, superconductivity, lasers, masers, gravity lensing, nanotech. Our beautiful machine, she said, with more love in her voice than she'd ever had for me. She trusts you, Bob. She doesn't watch you as carefully. Her resources are finite. You have the best chance to get there and get back. Get where? We're shooting for the early 23rd, maybe around 2301 to 2310. Find out why no one falls from there, Bob. Atropos people must have built her around then. They must have gained control of time around then. 
Find out what they've made of the world. She motioned to a chair, a simple piece of black plastic, stolen from the common room. Sit, she commanded. I obeyed. Why not? Poor Bob always obeys. The plastic was cold from the nitrogen. She knelt in front of me. At least I'd have a nice image to die with if everything went wrong. And reached under the chair and pulled out a pair of straps. Hands at your sides. I obeyed. Because Bob always obeys. She put one strap around my chest, pulling my arms against my side. The release catch, cold, was next to my left hand. She knelt again and started binding my legs. If I had known this was your idea of a good time, she stood again. We need to minimize the space you're taking up, just in case you come into a tight area. Her face was grim, worried, but she did lean in to give me a kiss. She slid a wafer into my belt. Just in case. Then she pulled down a pair of goggles over her eyes and walked out of my line of sight, somewhere behind the machine. Uh, Yulia, don't I get goggles? The temperature was dropping. Frost was forming on the chair. Yulia, I called out. The machine, the air around the machine, was beginning to throb, as was my head. Atropos bubbles never gave me a headache. Lights began to sparkle in my eyes. Intra-optical fireworks detonating to a sudden symphony of pain in my jaw and the back of my head. There was no time machine, I realized. There was no conspiracy. Eulia worked for Atropos, a honeypot to lure in fools like me, and Atropos was going to erase me now. Painfully. No mercy. Steve got mercy. Hot needles started to form in the center of my head and push out, burning holes through gray matter. Eulia! I screamed. Or, at least I think I screamed. Because my voice came out the flavor of cotton candy, and the light left scratches on my skin and I could hear the throbbing of the beautiful machine as fire and ice on my skin. A stray thread of poor Bob Johnson ran through my shredding mind. The music smelled like burning lavender. But these evil-hearted women, man, they will not let me be. The sound of the light grew overwhelming, a weight on my chest, and then darkness. When I woke up, it was mercifully dark except for the stars drifting high above, their light falling down on me in blues notes. Maybe this time jump had shaken the hellhounds on my tail. The ground around me was littered with broken trees. The coolness of the release catch was mercy in my hands, and I unsnapped the binding on my chest. I tried to stand, and pitched forward. Straps on the legs, Bob. I fumbled them loose and then stood. The beautiful machine was here with me, hissing slightly, off-gassing nitrogen. I had a half hour before it went back to its own time. Not much time to realize the future. I took a few steps and kicked up ashes. Low clouds were scudding by, tossing the stars into a game of peekaboo. The drifting stars. It took a moment to realize that this wasn't some artifact of my burning eyes. The stars were moving. Or at least some of them were. I recognized the grand W of Cassiopeia, the Queen of Heaven, regal and still. But other lights were cutting across her, moving in stately patterns from east to west. As a child, I once stood on the roof of my house and watched the International Space Station fly over after sunset, her solar panels burning from reflected sunlight, a brilliant star cutting across the sky.
The drifting lights, east to west, objects in orbit. My eyes fell back to earth, and I realized the trees were all lying in the same direction, pointing away from a shattered skyline to the north. I wasn't sure what city it had been. Maybe New York, maybe London, maybe Peoria. But it was broken now. But those lights in the sky? Maybe we'd gone into orbit after some war. Is this what Atropos was trying to protect us from? Was the perfect timeline one that ended in a war that drove us to orbit and beyond? I checked my watch. Twenty-eight minutes. Enough wool-gathering, Bob. I started to move toward the skyline as a break in the clouds let the moon shine through. It had new craters, black smears scattered here and there among clusters of lights. Despite the devastation, I smiled. We'd done it. As a kid, I wanted to go to space. I wanted us all to go into space. The naive covered wagon to the stars. It had taken some sort of global catastrophe, but we'd done it. The moon leered down, dotted with the lights of our new cities, and I made my way through the ashes and the pickup stick forest. Eulia and the others had it wrong. Atropos was trying to save this grand future. The hell with the earth. Give me the stars. Kill Kennedy to end Camelot and drive Johnson and NASA to the moon. Save Hitler to ensure World War II, the V-2 rocket and von Braun building rockets on the ashes of the crematoria. God, they'd be happy to hear this, to end the paranoia and fear, to realize that everything we'd done was right. Ahead there were some lights, a crossroad, a building, squat and faceted, half a buckyball embedded in the ashes. Life. Someone that would know something. There were machines stuck in the ground, pumping and grinding, pulling lifeblood out of the earth. It took me a moment to find the door, stuck high in the dome. I picked up a piece of charred wood and tossed it at the door. It landed with a dull thud. The moon disappeared behind the clouds, and the stars started to wink out. Then the door opened. I'm not sure which one of us was more frightened, it or me. But I do know which of us moved first. It was half insect and half plant. It was iridescent in the lights from the dome. And when its many eyes fell on me, it started to sing in alarm before I blew it into smoke with my wafer. The wind picked up the smoke and the low clouds and tore them both away. And above I could see those lights again, carving the orbits over the ruins on earth and moon. I fought down vomit and staggered over to the dome. It took some work, but I climbed up to the door in the side and looked inside. Machines, lights, displays, but nothing I could understand. Nothing human was here, had ever been here. I made my way back to the beautiful machine and strapped myself in to return to the crossroads. Now what? Eulia said when she was done crying. We were holding each other on the floor of the dorm in front of the machine. I need to have a talk with Atropos, I said. She'll erase you. Her grip tightened. Yep, I said as my stomach flipped. How fast can you recharge the machine? A few hours, she said, but what are you going to do? I felt a burning in my eyes. I gave her everything, Eulia. I gave her my soul. I'm going to get some answers. I want to know the deal I made. Robert, that's not an answer, Elia said sternly, wiping her eyes. 
I'm going to get me a hellhound, I said. The silver bubble descended over the crossroads and stopped, hovering before me. My reflection rippled in front of me, a shimmering, uncertain visage. The bubble parted, and I climbed inside. Hello, Robert, Atropos said. God, I wished her voice would give me a clue, an emotion, anything to work with. Hello, Atropos. I've got a man-portable fusion device strapped to my chest, hooked up to a dead man switch. The sweat-soaked straps Eulia had tightened across my chest to hold the bomb chafed. Atropos was quiet, so I rolled on. It's a late 22nd century model. A city buster. Forty, fifty megaton yield. And that's not counting the fallout. I'll blow the crossroads to hell, Atropos. Don't try to timeshift me, by the way. The bomb will detonate. A bluff, but she doesn't know us well, does she? I see. I'll have you erased, Robert, she said with no change in her inflection. Can I ask why? I want some answers, Atropos, I started, but she cut me off. You're not the first to try something like this, Robert. But I am disappointed. Was there some emotion there? I'm sorry, I said automatically. But I have to know the truth. No, you don't, she said. You will be erased. Maybe, I said, as my throat constricted. What would erasure feel like? Anything? Maybe not. I've made a pretty damn big ripple in the time stream. I'm not sure you can erase me without causing further damage. And if I'm erased, well, I shrugged. Boom. Another pause. The bubble began to move. What have you done, Robert? Either she could fix it all or not. No more secrets now. I dumped the plans for the wafers on the internet in the early 21st century. A million people can build a wafer now. Humanity will have the grand unified theory and time travel a few hundred years early. The bubble came to rest, and the lips opened up, spitting me out at the top of her tower. Tell me. Tell me the truth. I've saved Hitler and killed Kennedy for you. I've erased hundreds of earnest little fools because you told me I had to do it to save a timeline that ends in Armageddon and aliens. I wanted to scream, and I wondered if the bomb would detonate if I stroked out. She was beautiful, lovely, spinning spheres, flashing electric, and a gentle blue glow, like Cherenkov radiation. Pure and sterile, and forever in motion, carving orbital arcs of her intelligence in silver space. I loved her. Who made you, Atropos? The formers and shapers, she said. And up here in her core, her voice was magical, resounding, like standing in a bell. You're not human, I said, realizing how stupid the statement was the moment it left my mouth. You've been protecting their timeline, not ours, I said. I would have yelled it, but it would have been sacrilegious here, in her cathedral. All you know of us is what you sifted from our ashes. That and what you sent into space. They came to your planet following the carrier waves of your civilization. Lucy Ricardo and the Super Bowl, the Brady Bunch and Lost. Robert Johnson. I know he's a favorite of yours, Robert. 
When she spoke, lightning flashed between the spheres, and the sweet smell of ozone tickled my nose. They came in ships you humans could barely see, and they blasted you off your planet. They were shocked when the first of you reappeared after they'd wiped you out. Time travel. So they made me to watch your timelines, to make sure it wouldn't happen again. I've dispatched agents, Robert. Your grandparents are dead. You will be fading soon. Maybe, I said. Or maybe the wafer plans will be taken seriously. When your makers arrive, they'll meet a humanity that's mastered the wafer and the timelines. They won't find one little planet alone in the black. They'll find an empire. Maybe, she conceded. You'll be fading. You'll be the timeline that never existed. All of this gone. The crossroads will sink into the earth. Perhaps, she said. So, I guess we sit here. Until one of us vanishes? I fingered the detonator in my hands. I suppose so, she replied. Or both of us do. Somewhere in my head, I could hear poor Bob Johnson's high-pitched whine. Hello, Satan, I sung in a whisper. I believe it's time to go. What was that, Bob? she asked. I said goodbye. As I pushed down on the button, she was starting to say something. And I think in the first shake, as the fusion began, I could see through her silver tower to the frozen sun, caught halfway between rising and setting. And there you go. Big thank you to Alan. Alan, thank you so much indeed. Oh, man, thank you. Oh, fantastic. And original as well. That's brilliant. And Eric, what can I say, sir? Eric, it is an honour to have you. Your voice just, man, takes you away. Takes you away from all the crap in the world and just delivers a story like that. Thank Eric. Thank you so much. Now, if you can hear little nibbles in the background, Daisy, the doorman, my new, our new dog, Daisy, she, I've got to like somehow pacify her for a few minutes so she's got to chew. So I don't know if you can hear in the background, maybe little clicks and noises. That's Daisy, the doorman. Anyway, Ames. <laughs> what you got, Ames? Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to talk about a couple of topics related to the American author Kurt Vonnegut, who lived from 1922 to 2007. I'll admit I am a fan of Vonnegut's work. I started reading Vonnegut fairly early, and I continue to return to him to read books of his I haven't read, but also to reread books I have read. And I find something new to appreciate each time in the deep humaneness and dark humor of his writing. He wrote a number of science fictional novels and short stories, perhaps best known for Slaughterhouse-Five and Harrison Bergeron, a novel and short story, respectively. But as the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction notes, even his technically non-science fiction work is closely allied to much of his science fiction. And one of his most famous creations is the character of the science fiction author Kilgore Trout, who is part Vonnegut himself, part 
science fiction author Theodore Sturgeon. He appeared first in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater in 1965, and then went on to appear in Slaughterhouse-Five, Breakfast of Champions, Goodbye, Blue Monday, and other works. Uh, Philip Jose Farmer wrote a novel attributed to Kilgore Trout, Venus on the Half Shell, in 1975. And other creators sort of picked up this intertextual joke. So you can find mentions of Kilgore Trout in works from everyone from Salman Rushdie to Ringo Starr. At any rate, I was recently preparing to go to Indianapolis, Indiana, to take part in a scholarly colloquium on the works of Ray Bradbury, which is another topic for another time. But in preparing to go to Indianapolis, I realized that something I'd never visited before was now there, and I wanted to check it out. And that is the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. Not exactly brand new, but certainly new enough that I hadn't visited it uh, the last time I was there because it wasn't around yet. You can find it online at vonnegutlibrary.org. All right, so the museum has been in existence since 2011, and uh, I discovered, unfortunately, it no longer has the lease on the property where it had been for these last several years, but there is an active search going on for a new location, and in the interim, it has a temporary presence at the Circle Center Mall. It's worth visiting if you're in Indianapolis, and if you're not, the website is worth visiting, and I hope that the museum and library will have a new forever home, or at least long-term home, soon, uh, so it can continue its fight against censorship and its support of language and visual arts education. There are some really impressive programs and outreach activities that the museum is a part of, including uh, a literary journal and uh, school tours and partnerships and hosting exhibits and art shows and guest speakers. So interesting and worthwhile stuff. And again, you can find the museum and library at vonnegutlibrary.org. And this brings me to another Vonnegut-related topic. To get myself into the Indianapolis mood, I read a 2015 dual biography of Kurt Vonnegut and his older brother Bernard, or Bernie Vonnegut, called The Brothers Vonnegut, Science and Fiction in the House of Magic by Ginger Strand. And I recommend it, particularly if you are interested in either the relationship between real science and science fiction, or the development of Kurt Vonnegut as an author, and the way that he transformed his own experiences and the experiences of his brother into the driving forces behind several of his major novels. Let me start out by reading the official description of the book. Quote, Worlds collide in this true story of weather control in the Cold War era and the making of Kurt Vonnegut. In the mid-1950s, Kurt Vonnegut takes a job in the PR department at General Electric in Schenectady, where his older brother, Bernard, is a leading scientist in its research lab, or House of Magic. 
Kurt has ambitions as a novelist, and Bernard is working on a series of cutting-edge weather control experiments meant to make deserts bloom and farmers flourish. While Kurt writes zippy press releases, Bernard builds silver iodide generators and attacks clouds with dry ice. His experiments attract the attention of the government. Weather proved a decisive factor in World War II, and if the military can control the clouds, fogs, and snow, they can fly more bombing missions. Maybe weather will even be the new super weapon. But when the army takes charge of his cloud seeding project, dubbed Project Cirrus. Bernard begins to have misgivings about the harmful uses of his inventions, not to mention the evidence that they are causing alarming changes in the atmosphere. In a fascinating cultural history, Ginger Strand chronicles the intersection of these brothers' lives at a time when the possibilities of science seemed infinite. As the Cold War looms, Bernard's struggle for integrity plays out in Kurt's evolving writing style. The brothers Vonnegut reveals how science's ability to influence the natural world also influenced one of our most inventive novelists. From my perspective, two of the novels that get the best background here are, first of all, Player Piano. That's Vonnegut's first novel. Came out in 1952, and it's a dystopia of automation. And you can really see how the time Kurt Vonnegut spent at GE trying to put a positive spin on what was a punishingly dehumanizing and demoralizing experience for him in the conformity of what really was a machine itself, the entirety of General Electric. And a lot of this is not just up to General Electric, but it was also because of the sort of partnership of General Electric and the U.S. military in the Cold War context. And so you see in Player Piano this near-future society that's almost totally turned over to machines, not just automated production, but also automated decision-making, and how this mechanized society stratifies even further into the people who keep things running, the engineers and the managers, and those whose work and skills and whole reason for being in society seem to have been replaced by the machines. Now, at Vonnegut's own admission, there's a lot of previous dystopias, Yevgeny Zemyatin's We and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, for example, in Player Piano. But this book, The Brothers Vonnegut, really shines a light on how the focus on industrialization and the rhetoric of General Electric and big companies like that was specifically achingly relevant in that moment in U.S. Cold War culture. Another of Vonnegut's novels that comes into clearer focus uh, through the reading of the Brothers Vonnegut is Cat's Cradle, which came out in 1963. It's his fourth novel, and it's about science and technology and religion, a lot about the arms race, again, a very strongly Cold War topic. And one of the main characters is a scientist who has created something called Ice-9, and this new invention is capable of bringing about, well, 
the end of the world. And you can see how not only his concerns about the nuclear arms race, but also his sort of up-close and personal, Kurt Vonnegut's that is, views about his brother's work essentially being wrested away from him, commodified, weaponized, deeply informed this novel. Both Vonnegut's watched the turn from trying to understand better the way the universe worked to, yes, and how much money can we make from it, and more importantly, how many people can we kill with it? And that obviously left a powerful impact on both of them. And you can sort of sense Kurt Vonnegut laughing through his tears as he's writing these satirical, darkly funny, and deeply disheartened works. There's some good stuff in this book as well about Kurt Vonnegut's own experience being there at the firebombing of Dresden during World War II, and how that would ultimately inform perhaps his greatest, certainly his most well-known work, Slaughterhouse-Five. I'll have to admit on a personal note that I got a lot out of this book as well, The Brothers Vonnegut, as someone who's deeply invested in science fiction and what it can do through the metaphors that it uses and how it relates to the current day and to current concerns, current being current for the author, but also because of the way it uses metaphors, it remains in some ways often evergreen and able to speak far beyond its historical context. Anyway, I'm, I find it interesting to see how Vonnegut used those kinds of metaphors and, and used science fiction in this way. But I'm also the sister of a scientist, and my sister's work does overlap to a certain degree with Bernard Vonnegut's work. Certainly, there's a lot of areas of intersection. And so it kind of got me in the feels to see how these siblings were interested in the same issues and yet kind of came at them differently because of the way their minds work and because of the training that they had. So I found that to be kind of fascinating. Oh, and speaking of training, going back to Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, Vonnegut had been in the University of Chicago's anthropology program at the master's level, and he couldn't get a topic for his master's thesis approved. And then, later, in 1971, the University of Chicago decided to award Vonnegut his master's degree in anthropology for his novel Cat's Cradle, which is, I think, quite interesting in itself. Well, I have wandered around here a bit. Let me recap. Let me first suggest that if you are new to Vonnegut, well, you might want to read some of his work. Uh, and if you are new to Vonnegut, you might also get a lot of useful background information from reading The Brothers Vonnegut, Science and Fiction in the House of Magic by Ginger Strand. And if you're not new to Vonnegut, if you already like his work, I also strongly recommend The Brothers Vonnegut, which aside from being fascinating history in and of itself, provides some very useful context and insights on Vonnegut's work. And I would also encourage everyone to check out the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. If you're in Indianapolis, drop by its temporary location. If you are online, check out vonnegutlibrary.org. 
And I will leave you then with one of my favorite quotes from Kurt Vonnegut. I'm taking this from Man Without a Country. Quote, The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way of making life more bearable. Practicing an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow, for heaven's sake. Sing in the shower, dance to the radio, tell stories, write a poem to a friend, even a lousy poem. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward. You will have created something. End quote. And with that, I will see you again soon for another completely different look back at genre history. I look forward to sharing it with you. Thank you. Hi, thank you, Amy. You are a star. Thank you so much indeedy. And like I say, Amy is doing the Patreon, the audiobook, the serial audiobook classic from John Brunner as well. She's introducing that. And Drew Sebastian is the fantastic narrator. There you go. That is today's show, all tucked up and wrapped up in bed. I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, shall you say good night from me? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home With nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by.